0: Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 25. We're going to look at the whole chapter this morning, and you can find it on page 934 there in the Pew Bibles. If you, don't have, if you happen to be here and you don't own a Bible, the, the white and blue Bibles right there in the pews, those are our gift to you. Please take one of those. Uh, we'd love for you to have access to God's Word. And so uh, please take one of those when you go. Do you ever feel as though things are not what they are supposed to be, that the world is not what it's supposed to be? Now, not that, that you're super busy or, or, or that you're really feeling overwhelmed with life, but that there is something really wrong in the world. Maybe it keeps you up at night, and you're just wondering, how could this be? Life was not meant to be lived this way. So wrong in fact that maybe you at times wonder like Job, would it have been better had I never been born? Or, or like Ecclesiastes, that it all seems pointless and, and empty at times. Uh, uh, vanity, futility, uh, chasing after the wind. The world has been turned upside down. It's full of frustrations and restlessness, hatred and violence. We look out over the world and maybe we wonder, where is righteousness and truth? Where is goodness and mercy and justice? Where is peace and hope and love? Perhaps as though you feel like you might welcome death because you grow weary of living every single day of your life walking in the valley of its shadow. There's something deeply wrong with this world. This is not the way it's supposed to be. If you've ever experienced that, found yourself in the pit of despair, what kept you going? What hope? What purpose motivated you enough just to drag yourself out of bed? What truth, what desire sustained you? What kept you trying when you were ready to die because this world is upside down? This morning, we're going to get a glimpse of what that looked like for the Apostle Paul to live by faith in the midst of a world that has been turned upside down. This is two years later now. He stands before another Roman governor, and before a vassal Judean king and his lady, people that had no business standing in judgment over him. He's been held without charge for two years, uh, and these religious leaders among the Jews are still, after all this time, wanting him dead. And it appears before Paul that there are no good options in moving forward. You just don't even know what he's going to do. And yet we will see Paul trusting in the unfailing plan of God. When we find ourselves in the middle of the mess of this world and it doesn't seem like there's light at either end of the tunnel, sometimes all we can do is stick to the mission even if it seems like there's no good way out. That's what Paul is going to do and that's what our passage is going to teach us this morning. That though we live in a world turned upside down, walk by faith in the unfailing plan of God. May it quiet our weary souls and may it give us confident assurance this morning as we read Acts 25, beginning in verse 1. It says, now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let let men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let him bring charges against him. After he stayed there among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him saying that he couldn't, um, I'm sorry, that that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And they stayed there many days. Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it is not the custom of Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather... They had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain man named Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss of how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people... "'Petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, "'shouting that he ought not to live any longer. "'But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. "'And as he himself appealed to the emperor, "'I decided to go ahead and send him. "'But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. "'Therefore, I have brought him before you all, "'and especially before you, King Agrippa, "'so that after we have examined him, "'I may have something to write. "'For it seems to me unreasonable.' In sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Now, if this sounds like more of what we have already heard throughout the book of Acts, well, it kind of is, right? I mean, here we have Paul, yet again, an innocent man, held in custody, right, as he shouldn't be, making a defense between people who who aren't willing to give him justice right? It's more of the same thing. And so we can have a tendency then, when we read these things that seem a little bit redundant to us, to just go ahead and gloss over them and move on to what comes next. We'd be really tempted to do that, but we would be wrong to do that on two accounts. One, this is real history of a real man whom God had worked in and through for many, many years, right? Luke is intentional to give us this account of yet another opportunity, a yet another time in which Paul had to stand against another set of officials who could not find him guilty in any way, and yet he's still bound for his faith in Christ. And that's important. Luke records that for our good so that we wouldn't gloss over that, but so that we would think deeply about it. And there's truths to be learned there. There's things in Paul's life that are worthy of imitation As Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But a second reason why we need to look at this passage, though it might be a little bit redundant, is because it's not as though we struggle with this issue of the world not being what it should be just once in our life and never again right? You, you notice that, that that issue is never academic, right? We can know the truth in our heads, right? Okay, God's sovereign, right? The reason why the world is the way it is is because people have sinned against God, and therefore, this is why I'm experiencing this. Just This is the fallen world we live in, but there's hope and things yet to come. But that, you know, when I'm in the midst of the turmoil, and when, like, it's just darkness all around me, and I can't seem to make heads or tails of which way that I should go, I need these reminders. I need to see it yet again, because I'm still learning what that means and so God in his kind providence gives us this story yet again because again we need to hear it even though we've been looking at it week after week after week as we've been working our way through the book of Acts we still haven't learned it as we should and so we have another opportunity yet again to remember who God is what he is doing In our lives, even when this world seems turned upside down. And so what I want us to do this morning is just look at that main statement in two parts. Though we live in a world turned upside down, walk by faith in the unfailing plan of God. And so first, though we live in a world turned upside down. Friends, everything in the world is not as it should be because everything has been tainted or perverted by sin. The gifts that we've been given by God we then turn and make into idols that we worship instead of God. The skills, the talents, the abilities, even the roles that have been granted to us by our Heavenly Father we exploit in order to exalt ourselves in the place of God rather than to use them for the glory of God and for the good of others. Even art which is meant to display the truth and beauty of God in His world, we distort in order to promote a different view of the world than the one that God had made. Intimacy produces life. We pervert into sensuality that produces death. Morality is only employed when it's expedient. Compassion and mercy... Only when it's self-serving. Righteousness, only if I can promote my own self-righteousness. Justice may be given only to those who can pay for it. And truth, only if it spins out that way. And friends, that's because we live in an evil, unbelieving world. When I say evil, I don't mean that we live in a world that's as bad as it could possibly be, but evil is a perversion of what is good. It's a distortion. It's a, it's a turning away from God's good and perfect design and the way that he made things, the way that they were meant to operate. Right? God created it. God declared it good, but we have turned away from that. Thus, It is evil, and evil is ultimately the result of unbelief because we fail to trust God and His will and His ways as our best, and instead place our faith in someone or something else because we believe that their will and their ways are better. And so the world is not as it should be. We live in an evil, upside down world because sin has reigned in the hearts of mankind ever since our very first parents, Adam and Eve, until now. And these distortions, they don't need to be much. We only need to be off a degree or two for it to result in darkness, confusion, chaos, and misery. And some of the darkness and despair that you may be experiencing as you look out at this sinful world that we live in is not necessarily because the world is as bad as it can possibly be, but because the hearts of men are misaligned, leading them to turn away from the truth and beauty of God. And this perverted world that we live in Not only does it hold those who do not follow Christ under its dominion, under its domain, but it also tries to keep God's people in captivity as well. We see as much as the case with Paul and Paul's situation. I mean, just look at how the world was not as it should be for Paul in his day. He's just spent the last two years unlawfully held in custody as a prisoner without charge by the Governor Felix. And this guy, the Governor Felix, may he showed great promise. I mean, he had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. He was really curious about the things of God. He wanted to hear from Paul. He spoke often of faith in Christ Jesus. And even when Paul declared to him aspects of the gospel that he needed to hear of of righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, we even see that Felix feared the Lord. And yet this man who, who showed such great promise didn't end up following Christ had a rather accurate knowledge about the way, but he didn't actually follow the way. And as a result of that, Paul sat in prison for two years because Felix would rather get a bribe from him and do a favor to the Jews who wanted him dead than to trust Christ. And if you think that that two-year period of incarceration there in Caesarea was not enough, hindering the mission of Christ that Paul was given, you think that that would be enough to satisfy his enemies. I mean, he he's sat in custody in Caesarea for two years now, but it wasn't enough for them. Festus was only on the job for three days replacing Felix as governor when he went up to Jerusalem to check things out. And as soon as he did, verse 2 says that the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul and they urged him asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. That same plan that they had two years earlier ambush him and kill him. They're still seeking to do that. These religious leaders and civic leaders were still wanting him dead. And I got to thinking about that, you know, like whatever became of those 40 men, those 40 plus men that made that vow that they would neither eat nor drink until Paul was dead, you know, because they were going to ambush him on the way. Whatever became of those guys, right? I mean, like Surely they gave up the fast. If they kept the fast, they didn't make it two years. And so what became next? You know, they died off, and other guys kind of took up the vow after them, you know? And and so they died, and then it kind of kept going and kept going and kept going, and suddenly the male population of Jerusalem was drastically decreased over this two-year period. I don't know. But what we do know, what we can see from this, is just how much they hated Paul and the gospel. That no amount of time, no incarceration is going to be enough to satisfy their desire for his blood. And that didn't change. They still wanted him dead. And would go to any means necessary to do that. And what is worse is that these are the religious and civil leaders of the Jews. These are the people that if anybody among the Jews should have been eagerly anticipating the coming of the Christ. Eagerly anticipating the hope of the resurrection and pointing other people to him. These should have been the guys. They should have been leading the charge, helping people to recognize that, this, that Jesus is the Christ and that they live in the hope of the resurrection, but they didn't. Instead, they hated it because this was not the Christ that they wanted. This was not the gospel that they wanted because Christ is welcoming Gentiles and sinners and Christ is not exalting them the way they think that they deserve and so they want this message to be silenced they asked Festus for a favor so that they might kill Paul and in their own twisted and perverted upside down way they actually thought they were doing God a favor It's a messed up world you live in when religious leaders are turning away from God and thinking they're doing a service to him. Now in the kindness of God, Festus was not as immoral or incompetent as his predecessor Felix. And so he replies to them, you know what, I'll go down. I'll address this without delay. And so you let men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's any wrong about the man, let him bring charges against him. So Festus stayed for a few more days, and then he went down to Caesarea, and he promptly tried the case. And so Festus, unlike Felix, was a reasonable, just, and productive governor. He cared about his job. He desired to do it well. This guy has been left in prison, uncondemned for two years. That is against the law. That's not okay. And yet we have these these Jewish leaders who want him dead. So first order of business, I have got to deal with this immediately. And he does. And so it looks promising right there, doesn't it, right? Last, all is right in the world. Let goodness and justice prevail. But yet, we see in verse 7, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Now, the last time they brought three main charges did they come with an even greater arsenal this time against Paul? Well, apparently they had two years to build their case because they were ready to kill him. And these were serious charges that would have resulted in his execution, right? Uh, maybe, maybe not so much disobeying the law of the Jews, but man, you go against Caesar, you're dead. And even if you profane the temple, you're dead. And yet they couldn't prove any of them. And so once again, we have the innocent Paul being unjustly accused of things that he had not done. In verse 8, again, we are told as much. Paul argued in his defense, uh, though these three charges, if found guilty, were worthy of execution, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, though perhaps a truer man than Felix still wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Now that might sound okay because it's like, hey, I I need some wisdom here. I need to understand more of your background. So that would help me to to sort of be there and kind of learn a little bit more of the lay of the land before I can render a judgment. And, And maybe some of that's going on there. But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. Because Rome had the right to try the case, not the Jews. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not escape, uh, seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And then Festus, as a display of wisdom and humility, When he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. Now friends, on on the whole, Festus was far more just, far more wise, far more humble than Felix ever was. But in the end, this governor was still more concerned about political favor, favor than he was about seeking justice, even though he knew the truth. He knew that Paul had done nothing deserving of death. I mean, he said as much to Agrippa in verses 14 through 21 and again in verses 24 through 27 before the court. He recognized that the central issue of the dispute was there in verse 19 about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. But they had brought no charge in his case of such evils as Festus supposed. So just like Galio, the proconsul of Achaia, just like Claudius Lysias, that tribune that was there in Jerusalem, and just like Felix before him, Festus found that Paul had done nothing deserving of death, and yet he doesn't render a verdict or release him because he was more concerned about gaining political favor than he was about truth, justice, and righteousness. And if that wasn't bad enough, then there's Agrippa and Bernice in verses 14 through 27. Now, this is King Herod Agrippa II. He is the son of King Herod Agrippa I, the guy who persecuted the church and killed James in in Acts chapter 2 before he was eaten by worms and died because of his pride this is the grandson of Herod the Great, the guy who killed off all of those young boys when he heard about the birth of Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. So, this guy's coming from a really great line here. In addition to that, he was, he was educated in Rome. He was appointed as this, this uh, brown nosing vassal king of Judea by Emperor Claudius. And so, though he is a Jew, he is loyal to the Romans. Right, he, he, is, he is in no way concerned about the law. He is in no way concerned about you know, what is right, what is true, what is fair. He's only concerned about getting in good with Rome. And then there's his sister Bernice. Yes, his sister, who is also his lady friend, if you get my meaning. All right? Years earlier... Bernice had married her uncle, Herod of Chalcis. I know that's a lot of Herods, but, you know, it's just the way families roll, right? But nevertheless, married her uncle, and this was considered the good marriage, marrying your uncle, having kids with your uncle. It's kind of icky, right? But in 48 AD, he died, and so she moved in with her brother, Agrippa II. Now, Josephus, the historian, Records that all of these accusations began flying because of this criminal, read, incestuous relationship existing between Agrippa and Bernice. And so what Bernice does in order to stave off the scandal is that she goes and she tries to convince Polemon, not to be convinced, uh, confused with Pokemon, right, the, the king of Cilicia, to marry her in order to just kind of squash this scandal down. But, but apparently that didn't work out. Maybe he had a tendency to play childish card games of Japanese pocket monsters. We don't really know. But either way, she goes back to Agrippa and and embraces the scandal full on. And these are the people that are standing in judgment over the righteous Paul. He is being judged by lesser men. Unrighteous people standing in places of judgment. Are they really going to render a righteous verdict here? And so here we have the innocent who has already suffered so much in the hands of the guilty. They had come down to, to Caesarea, sure, but they did it in pomp and circumstance in order to welcome and to pay homage to this no, newly appointed Roman governor. And though Herod desired to hear the case as well, this was a show trial. Right? He, he's not concerned about justice. He's not concerned about what's fair. He's not concerned about truth. He's only concerned about personal glory, right? Right? If something is kind of stirring things up and the crowd is all kind of talking about this guy who's sitting in prison for two years and this Paul, what's he about? Talks about this Jesus and all this kind of stuff. Everybody's talking about it, right? The guy that's seeking personal glory wants to get in on that. And that's what he's doing. And you add to that Festus' statement in verse 24 that the whole Jewish people had petitioned him both in Jerusalem and in Judea uh, and Caesarea shouting that, that Paul ought not to live any longer. And so in Festus's eyes, the whole Jewish people wanted Paul dead. Guys, this is not as it should be. This is a world that has been turned upside down, a world perverted by sin that strives to hold God's people in captivity. We see the same types of things happening today, don't we? We see the suffering of the innocent. We see the righteous are unlawfully bound. We see religious and civil leaders who should be directing their people to goodness and righteousness and truth towards God's will and God's ways are actually standing against God and wanting to see His ambassadors killed. We see God's people deal with unjust accusation, harsh and undue criticism. We see politicians who are more concerned about political favor than justice, though they know the truth. The unrighteous are in positions to condemn the righteous and whole groups of people are actively striving for the destruction of the gospel and of God's people. This is a world that has been turned upside down. This is a world that is not as it should be. And the thing is, if they can't silence the gospel by holding God's people in captivity to sin, then they will seek to do it through judicial sentence. This is not as it should be. And if they can't hold you in bondage to living for the world and loving the world, then they will try to condemn you under worldly authorities. And when we find ourselves suffering, though we are trying to live faithfully for Christ, we might be prone to despair and wondering why on earth this is happening. Why is the world the way that it is? This is not as it should be. Why am I suffering as I am? Well, friends, I would encourage you to remember the words of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. It says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, and yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good than if if that should be god's will then for doing evil for christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to god being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit friends in our suffering we are imitating the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ who suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that we might be brought to God through our new life in him if the Lord wills our suffering in this upside-down world that we live in, it is to display the perfect righteousness of Christ who for our sakes died and was raised for the salvation, not just of ourselves, but for those who might see us, who might ask us to give a defense for the hope that exists within us. And though... You may be overwhelmed with darkness and despair or confusion because this world is not as it should be. Do not lose heart because this is not the end. It's only the middle. The story is still unfolding. God's plans and God's purposes have not yet been fully realized. God is doing a work in you and through you and for you, for his glory, for the good of yourself and others, and so that you might learn to find your joy in him and in him alone. But you have got to trust him. And if you are here as someone who, who doesn't follow Christ, and yet you too look out and and wonder at the state of the world that we live in and wonder why things are the way they are, this is not the way that it should be, let me just tell you that that recognition that you have of, of sin and unrighteousness and injustice and evil in the world that What you see in the world not being what it should be, that's actually a gift that has been given to you by God. You can see that because God has made it so. The reason we know that there is wrong is because God has placed a concept of perfect goodness in our hearts And though our consciences can be flawed, though we can excuse away our sin all day long, we can still look out and we can know, we can assess. That is not the way it should be. That is wrong. There is something evil about that because God has placed that standard of good and evil in your heart so that you now have the ability to do so. And that good and perfect standard of goodness that you intuitively use to judge the world around you is based upon the very character of God Himself when you look and you see that's wrong and you think, what am I judging that based upon? That is God written on your hearts in order that you might know him. He is the goodness, the rest, the peace, the hope, the love that you are looking for. This world is not the way that it should be because we, mankind, have all failed to trust God and have gone our own way. We have all tried to live for ourselves as if this is my world and I am God. Even though we know that that's not true, we still live that way day after day after day trying to make some way on our own way that is contrary to God and what he puts forward as a standard for goodness and righteousness and truth. This is why the world is the way it is, because we have all rebelled and rejected God. But in His love, in His wisdom, and in His mercy, He is in the process of restoring and perfecting this world that has been broken by sin. You see, at the right time, he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to do what you and I could never do, to live according to that standard of goodness that God has placed upon our hearts. He obeyed God's law perfectly, and he laid down his life. He took it up again in his resurrection for the hope of restoring, of reclaiming, of renewing, of transforming all that has been broken by sin. He is making the world new again, only better because it far exceeds that world that God had originally made that was very good. This is a world that is being perfected and will be made perfect in Jesus Christ where there is no weeping, where there is no sin, where there is no injustice or unrighteousness or, or ungodly you know, character or, or anything that you can imagine. His death has the power to cover all that is wrong in the world and his resurrection has the power to make all things new. God is in the process of reconciling all things to himself and restoring the world to a state that it is even greater than its former goodness, a world that is perfect. But to be a part of it, you must turn away from your former desires to live for yourself. To take him at his word, to trust him, to believe that his will and his ways are best. To turn away from all of these desires that lead to brokenness and sin and death, adding to the world that has been turned upside down to living by faith in Christ. Waiting for the hope of this coming eternal glory. God is in the process of redeeming that which has been turned upside down but we must wait for it and live for it until God's unfailing plan is realized when redemption becomes fruition in our sight. So I would encourage you to respond by repenting of your sin and trusting in God's perfect purposes. And that leads us to the second point, that though we live in a world turned upside down, Walk by faith in the unfailing plan of God. As we move back to our text, I want you to try to imagine what it would be like to be Paul. Imagine all the questions, all the doubts, all of those tear-filled nights as you were sitting unjustly in prison wondering what is going to become of you, knowing that there's no good option that's presented before you. You don't really have a way out. You're just kind of there waiting to see what is going to happen. That kind of discouragement, I hope you know that however you think like, man, that's how I would feel, that was not lost on Paul either. You see, Paul was a man too. Paul struggled with all of the same things that we struggled with. In fact, he said early on, earlier on in his ministry in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that he was so utterly burdened beyond his strength that he despaired of life itself, afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. These were words that Paul used to describe how he felt at various points in his ministry. You see, living by faith in the midst of such wickedness and injustice was overwhelming for Paul as well. But he also came to realize that through his sufferings in the midst of this upside-down world that God was teaching him not to rely upon himself but on God who raises the dead. That through his many trials, Paul gained assurance that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation would be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He was able to gain perspective that we carry in us this priceless treasure in jars of clay in order to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And that we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh that is both yours and mine. And so death is at work in us, but through us, life in others. And these light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. As we look to the things, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Is that Godward perspective? In reliance upon the Holy Spirit and obedience to God's word enabled Paul then to make faithful decisions. You see throughout the whole ordeal we see Paul was still able to uphold his innocence while maintaining a good conscience. Right? He didn't kind of have this woe is me attitude and just like things are not fair in the world so I'm just going to go out and sin. Because things are not the way I want them to be. We don't see Paul just kind of doubting and and living in in constant despair because the world wasn't going the way that he thought that it should. Like so often it does within us. In terms of of ministry, guys, I'm guessing that the reason why after all Two years that the whole Jewish people, both in Jerusalem and in Caesarea, where he had been imprisoned, were still wanting him dead, was because Paul's ministry was still active. And the Jews were still leaving Judaism and coming to place their hope in the Christ who has come and who will come again and in the hope of the resurrection. As he said there in verse 11, he's not deceiving or, or skirting the issue in order to protect himself. If he had done wrong, he's willing to accept the consequences. He wants justice, righteousness, and truth to prevail, even if that would mean his own condemnation, though he knows he's done nothing wrong. He willingly submits to the governing authorities. He's not seeking to escape death, and neither is he running after it. He's not trying to be a martyr here, because the quickest way for Paul to become a martyr is to take Festus up on that suggestion. Yeah, go try me in Jerusalem. So he's not trying to save his own skin, and neither is he trying to be a martyr. In fact, this appeal that he makes to Caesar in verse 11 was a last resort. That's why he waited two years to do it. It's a last resort for a couple of reasons. One, right? You have to have a just cause in order to make such an appeal, right? Not everybody gets an audience with Caesar, right? You have to have good reason to show that, you know what, these people, this situation, these, these governing officials are incompetent to try my case, and therefore I have to appeal to a higher court. We get that concept even today in our judicial system, right? And so they have to be that, that has to be there. There has to be good reason to ask for it to go up, but also what has to happen is that the person who is judging your case has to sign off on it because that's the person that's going to send you on to Caesar. Now think about that for a minute. That takes great humility. Now Felix, that would have never happened with Felix. Felix. There's no way that Felix would have ever signed off on Paul going to Rome. But Festus, being new to this position, not really understanding what has been going on, the fact that this has been going on for so long, and and actually showing the humility and and the, the deep regard for the position that he has, is willing to do just that. He just has no idea what to write to Caesar about. But the second and more significant reason why this appeal appeal was a last resort is that Paul does not want to use his Roman citizenship as a means of his release. He wants to be identified as a faithful Jew. And if he played this card, if he played that citizenship card to save his own skin, his enemies would say, well, there's Paul. An unclean Gentile lover using his citizenship just to save his own tail. See, see, he's not one of us. He's not a faithful, God-fearing Jew. He's just another immoral pagan. And it would bring reproach upon Christ. It would provide yet another stumbling block to the gospel. Something that Paul absolutely did not want to do when he was left with the option of indefinite carceration in Caesarea and death in Jerusalem, he had no choice but to lay down that final card in order to see not his will be done, but the will of Christ be done. Because remember, in chapter 23, verse 11, when he's standing in the barrack cell in Jerusalem, Jesus appeared to him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you will also testify of me in Rome. You See, this was God's will, not Paul's. And this is big. I want you to get this. Because you see, we have this tendency to try to leverage the gospel in order to maximize our lives. But Paul leveraged his life in order to maximize the gospel. That's big. I'm going to say it again. We have a tendency to try to leverage the gospel in order to maximize our lives. But Paul leveraged his life in order to maximize the gospel. He says it another way in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the faith I live in the flesh I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what it means to live. That's what matters, not using Christ to get what I want but to live for the glory of Christ. Who has already given me everything that truly matters, that is truly of value. And we know this because even when he appears before Festus, he's still preaching Christ in the resurrection. And we don't don't have a record of what he actually said before Festus. We have Festus' report on it. And Festus didn't understand it because he didn't have a rather accurate knowledge of the way or a Jewish wife the way that Felix did. But he does recognize in verse 19 that the dispute was about their own religion. More specifically, how Jesus fulfilled all of God's prophecies and promises in the Old Testament. And about a certain Jesus who was dead, whom Paul, but whom Paul asserted not just to be alive, but to have raised and to ascended and have seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But in the midst of all of this turmoil, Paul is able to make faithful decisions because in all things he sought to put Christ before himself. To trust in his will and his ways, even if that would mean hardship for Paul. And Paul sought the glory of Christ first, because Christ sought to glorify his Father first in all things. Whereas if you remember Jesus' entire life, including his sufferings and death at the hands of lawless men, was so that the will of his Father would be done. The definite plan that included his death and resurrection, his ascension and exaltation, his coming return in glory to judge all things and to reconcile the world to himself in glory. It was not just that the Lord ordained his death. It was that the Lord ordained this joy that was yet to come. We've got to get that. We're we're not going to make sense of our sufferings if we don't get that. And just in case you're thinking, well, you know, that's fine for Paul, or that's fine for Jesus, but I'm not an apostle, I'm certainly not the Son of God, I just want to remind you of 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We see Paul imitating Christ in his suffering, and he says, imitate me. Part of walking by faith in Christ is a willingness to share in the sufferings of Christ so that we may also share in His joy and glory. In this upside down world that we live in, We don't just get the good and not the bad when we come to Jesus. Instead, we live in order to please God in all things in the midst of a world that is not what it should be. And if they hated him, they hated his message, they will hate you and yours as well. But faithful decisions throughout our lives as we strive to walk by faith are the fruit of actively trusting in a faithful God. Though we are in the middle of, of it all, and it's hard at times to see the light of day in the midst of all of this darkness, the book of Acts reminds us that God's unfailing plan is being fulfilled. It is being accomplished according to design. It all began with Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And that's what we see happen in the book of Acts, isn't it? The, the church receives the power of the Holy Spirit, and they go proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. Think about Paul's conversion and his call in chapter 9, verse, verses 15 and 16. Where it said, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now don't get caught up in that suffering for the sake of your name and miss that God used Paul's suffering as the means of carrying the name of Christ to Gentiles and to kings and to children of Israel. Paul is about to stand before King Agrippa a short time later, he will stand before Caesar. And you know what it took to get him there? You know what was necessary in order for Paul to have that audience? All of that suffering. All of it. And yet God used it. God is not doing that because he's been just malevolent, because he's evil, because he's just, he's seditious and just angry and out for your pain and hardship and all of this stuff. God does it because you are his chosen instrument. Guys, don't miss that. This is Paul, former persecutor of the church, who Christ says, he's my chosen. I chose him. And with that choice comes all of the love, all of the covenant promises, all of the forgiveness, all of the adoption, all of the redemption, all of the transformation, all of the hope, all of the joy, all of the glory that comes with that choice. It's gain. Paul sees it as gain. It's all working together for good. Remember Jesus' words of comfort to him in that cell. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And you know how the book of Acts ends? Acts 28, verses 30 and 31. It says, Paul lived there in Rome two years at his own expense under house arrest. And he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's what God did in his life. He kept all of his promises. Think about the providence of God in the appointment of Festus. This humble, wise, diligent governor who despite not being a follower of Christ earnestly desired to do his job well. He's not like Felix who had a rather accurate knowledge of the way but who would not follow Christ. Festus would die a mere two years later. But right here he was God's appointed servant to be in this position at this time in order to send Paul to Rome. Think about the appeal that Paul made. You do realize that God could have just put Paul on a boat, sent him to Rome. God wanted him there, he could have done that. But he didn't. Instead, Paul sat in prison for two years before making this appeal, and this appeal was the means of getting Paul to Rome. And even that ought to be a great comfort to us. Because God even works through our decisions to be the means of accomplishing his good purposes. And therefore, our lives and our decisions have meaning. But here's another thing. And this this is a kicker. Do you know who was Caesar at the time that Paul made this appeal? It was Nero. Nero, one of the greatest persecutors of the church of all time. Only Nero hadn't lost his marbles yet. So he was still halfway decent Caesar, halfway decent emperor, right? Now, if this would have happened just a, a year or two later, there's no way that Paul would have ever made this appeal because you wouldn't go and appeal to a man who was crucifying and burning live Christians in order to light up his garden at night. Thousands persecuted. The hands of Nero just a few years later. But here, still good. Or even if you flip over to chapter 26, verse 32, you see that even the immoral Agrippa would have been willing to pardon Paul had he not made this appeal to Caesar. And you might think to yourself, well, why couldn't it have gone this way? Right? Why, why couldn't it have ended right here? Why couldn't this be the case? Well, friends, how would Paul's witness have been affected if he was pardoned by a Roman-loving, incestuous token king? But a pardon by Caesar, the greatest authority in the world, though not a believer, would show that the whole world could not bring reproach. Upon the gospel. You see, God has a purpose in it all. We might not understand it because we're somewhere in the middle, and this hardship and suffering is overwhelming because the world is not as it should be. But this is where we have the greatest opportunity to live by faith and so display the glory of God. I was actually reminded this week of a quote that a friend of mine made who recently went home to be with the Lord. Robert, I uh, met him in seminary. He was, uh, he was about my father's age. He had been a pastor and a church planter in Florida before he went to seminary later in life, and, and he was a great mentor of mine, in fact, a great encouragement for me to come up here and plant this church. I don't know that I would be here. We're not for Robert. He got really sick. As his body wasted away and his keen intellect began to fade. His faith and his testimony of the goodness and glory of God burned brighter and brighter and brighter with every day as he prepared for glory. And shortly before he died... He said, I do not know what to pray for in these times. I do not have the wisdom to know what needs to happen next. My father, however, does. And I trust his will because he loves me and he is smarter than I am. In fact, he is brilliant. God is not a novice. He has written my book and he knows what is my next chapter. The Lord took him home a short time later. His dying words were in praise of Jesus. Now You might find yourself in a situation where you don't know how to pray. You have no idea what comes next, but God does. God is good. God is wise. God is loving. God has purposes in all things, and you can trust Him. And so though we live in a world turned upside down, my encouragement to you is to walk by faith in the unfailing plan of God. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you so much that even when we do not know How to pray as we ought. We have the Holy Spirit who is groaning in us with longings that are too deep for words. That we are never left to ourselves. We're never left by ourselves. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, even now is interceding on our behalf. So, Lord, may we take comfort and solace in knowing that, that we are not alone, that there is purpose in every moment of our lives Lord help us to truly cherish and to have faith that you are using this moment right here and right now for good and not just for our good but for others give us eyes to see and a hope that will not fade not because of our own strength but because we believe in you who has the power to raise the dead god help us to have an eternal perspective that sets our hope fully in the glory to come and to proclaim the truth and beauty of our lord and savior jesus christ until that we meet him face to face and we become like him because we see him as he is i pray that that would be our treasure So, Lord, we ask for your help, knowing that you will complete the work that you have begun in the day of Christ. And so we look forward to it and we say, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come. It's in his name we pray. Amen.